Thank you, Alan, and I have greatly enjoyed being here today since he asked me to come and, and minister to you in chapel this morning and this evening. I have greatly looked forward to this opportunity and this day. I wonder if the feelings and emotions that I have had about uh, considering standing in front of you tonight, uh, if they aren't similar to what many of your chapel speakers may feel. For I think about when I sat where you sit, and uh, going back all those years, I mean, we did have schools in those days, and they're still functioning and, and all. Uh, when I realized how green I was, how naive, actually there were two or three major issues in the church that I and a couple of my classmates had completely solved before we ever graduated and for some reason never had the opportunity of engaging the solution and putting it into practice. I don't know what happened. But anyway, I have uh, asked the Lord to give me some guidance to take these few minutes to share something with you that you might find helpful. I want to talk with you tonight about silver and gold and vision and passion. Silver and gold and vision and passion. It all comes nicely together in this third chapter of Acts. If you have your textbook with you. And incidentally, I might remind you that the book of Acts is really a must-read for any Christian student and Christian minister. And I would encourage you to just make a little note when you get into ministry. Read it at least once a year, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and line it up alongside your ministry experience and see if it has something to speak into your own experience. Well, tonight we're going to look at the third chapter and a few more verses. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, about three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Out of my own recent experience, I can now relate to that because when I've gone to church in India, where my son is a missionary, uh, when you enter into church, and many of those churches have gates, like they did in this case, there will be a crowd of beggars before church and after church that you make your way through coming in and out of the property. So I can visualize the crowds that I have gone through to get to church and, and kind of have a picture of what of what Peter and John were experiencing. Well, when this man, this crippled man, saw Peter, verse 3, and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter, and Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now I would stop right there and ask you, do we really have any other choice than to do what Peter and John, Peter and John did? That is, can we give anything other than what we have? Can we? I don't know quite how to do that. We can make pretenses at it. And so they gave out of what they had. And what they had was not monetary. 
but rather they were able to engage in a moment of a healing ministry. They looked at that man. I wish I had time to elaborate just on that concept of what went on in their hearts when they looked at this man that needed what they had to offer. If you can just remember only one thing out of what I say tonight, it's this. We can't give what we don't have. And my question is, what is it that you and I have to give? Well, Peter and John said, silver and gold have we none in the King James language, but such as we have, give we thee. Well, today, we're in a circumstance that rather reverses that whole concept. We do have silver and gold. And uh, whether you're a Nazarene or a member of another church, you, are, you belong to a body that has great silver and gold. And we are at a time when Nazarene silver and gold goes literally by the millions around the world accomplishing ministry. It's a marvelous thing. And I love it. And I, I was thinking this afternoon about my own past uh, record. I guess I've raised close to a million dollars myself with the help of a lot of others toward Nazarene missions. And then I've been to where it's gone and see the good that it does. And it's exciting. It's truly, truly exciting to witness this. We do have silver and gold. And so we give it. But how pathetic would we be if that's all we have to give? As much as we can accomplish with silver and gold, there is a real downside to it. I've been there. I've seen this. Money that comes into mission fields can create tremendous tensions on the field. How is this money being distributed? Who's responsible for making these decisions? How can I get my share of it? And there have been times when, sadly enough, these funds have torn apart the work. In this case, with Peter and John, what was needed was a ministry of healing. And they engaged in that and brought this man to his feet. Another downside of the ministry of money is when it leads people to believe that ministry can only be done when there is money to support it. You can only do ministry when you have enough money for that. Now, I have to confess, I have pastored churches that have had limited funds, and that's not fun. And I've been privileged to pastor churches that had tremendous resources, and it's kind of like fun to do ministry when you have adequate finances for the things you want to do. But it's sad when we get to the place of thinking we can't do this ministry, we can't engage in this thing that God has called us to because we don't have the funds to support it. Or to think that ministry can only be done with money. Have you ever read this passage in... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I have read that over the years and wonder how in the world did this happen? 
Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, how does that happen? Even when I've seen it up close, I confess, I don't know quite how that happens. I wish I could introduce to you tonight my friend Peter George. Peter pastors a small Nazarene church in Pune, in Maharashtra, just some miles south of Bombay. It's a tiny Nazarene congregation, and his congregation is, you would have to call it, impoverished. I suppose his church raises in a year's time about the equivalent of a one-week salary for an American pastor. And yet, Peter, a couple of years ago in his church, got a vision for ministering to poor people. I'm referring to the nearby slum. And you have not witnessed or experienced anything until you've gone into one of those slums of, of India. It's, it's just, I don't know how to describe it to you. But here Peter's poor congregation felt led by God to minister to poor people. I mean, really poor people in this slum. And so as they've gotten acquainted in there, they have adopted about, I think, about a hundred families or so. They go in there periodically and conduct nutritional clinics, well baby clinics, things of that sort. And then a couple of Christmases ago, the children in Peter's congregation each received a shoebox from Samaritan's Purse. They were thrilled. How exciting to open that shoebox and get those little things in there, a bar of soap, toothbrush, a few toys. And, and they were just delighted with that. And then they said to one another, we need to do this for those poor kids. So they took what was given them on those shoe boxes, kept the boxes, and refilled them. And after they got them full, put the lid back on, wrapped them up, and took them into those families in the slum, and gave them to those poor children. I confess, I don't know how they did that. I don't know where they got what they put back in those boxes and how they gave those gifts. Just like I really don't understand where Peter's congregation gains the resources to do the ministry that they're engaged in on a regular basis in that slum neighborhood. But Paul said the Macedonians did it and I've seen those Indian Nazarenes do it. And I can't tell you in either case how they did it, but they did. So one of the great lessons to learn is it really does not take money to do ministry. There's a great mystery there that I don't altogether understand. But out of what they had, Peter and John, they ministered to this man. Now just prior to this, on the day of Pentecost, after all of this excitement of the Holy Spirit coming, Peter was called forth 
to minister out of his own heart and preach. Now you can go back in the second half of chapter 2 and read this sermon. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts and read the sermons that are recorded there, they were all given spontaneously. If you or I had been there and asked to preach in that occasion, I would have said, well, give me a couple hours at least. Let me go over and study this and have something to preach. But out of what Peter had, he preached this tremendous message. And verse 40, with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That must have been one powerful message. Now those of you who love numbers and statistics, 3,000, wow. I hope you don't stop reading right here. When you count the folks in your pews, you count the elbows at your potluck tables, I want you to think about something, another aspect of this. Look at the quality of these converts. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those were some quality converts. And I don't know how those apostles did it. Nazarene Publishing House wasn't cranking out its discipleship materials. Neither was InterVarsity. Neither were all these other wonderful sources that we have. All they had was the teaching of the apostles. Now we know what happened in the lives of these initial 3,000 converts because what we, they were, everyone was filled with awe and there were wonders and miraculous signs. The believers were, were together, had everything in common. And, and then they, they met together daily, they broke bread, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And then look, down for verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. Now, I said, I want you to line this up with what you anticipate your ministry to be. Will there be people being added daily because of the growth, the development of your converts, your congregation? Seeing people brought to Jesus. A friend of mine told me recently about an afternoon that he spent not long ago with a retired Nazarene evangelist. Now this was not just any evangelist, if you can say that, but this man, if I were to use his name, most of you would recognize it, probably the best known and most successful Nazarene evangelist of his generation. He's now in his 80s and my friend spent a delightful afternoon with him and they talked about the history of evangelism, that evangelist experience and his heart for God and his heart for the lost and finally my friend asked him, well where are you attending church right now? Well the atmosphere got a little awkward and finally he had to admit, well I'm attending a Baptist church over here. 
Now he lives in a large metropolitan area where I suppose there's a half dozen Nazarene churches within a 30 minute drive of his home. But here he's attending this Baptist church. My friend asked him why. He said, I feel at home there. They are passionate for winning the lost. And they are bringing people to Jesus. And it makes me feel like this is the atmosphere where I've always belonged. Now the reason I tell this story is to ask you if this evangelist at some time future were to visit where you're ministering, would he feel at home? Would he see the evidence of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ under your ministry? I pray that he would. But how does all of that happen? Well, look forward to chapter 13 and its description of the church at Antioch and the kind of worship that they engaged in. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, namely Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, I contend that must have been some powerful worship setting. For there to be the consciousness by the whole congregation that God is putting his hand on two of their members and calling them out for specific ministry. How often does that happen in our worship? It should be, I think, on the evidence of Acts, a regular thing for God's people to be worshiping together. And there come the deep conviction that here are individuals being called into ministry. Now, I've had the great privilege of knowing those, some of those people in this day. And they weren't all ordained ministers, many lay people. And I want to suggest to you that if God calls out of your ministry some individuals like this, that he's put his hand on his, in a special way, let them minister. I've had some of the, my friends who had this kind of a calling and it totally intimidated their pastor. They didn't know what to do with this guy. If that happens to you and your ministry, at least just get out of the way and let them serve God and follow their calling. Or maybe you can get alongside of them and give some guidance to their sense of calling. If nothing else, let me suggest you take them to Nazarene headquarters and I'll give you a few names that I'd like you to introduce them to. They'll get them headed out. I wrote a book about one of those men. It's one of this year's missionary reading books. I don't know if you've seen it or read it. It's called The Master's Builder, Jerome Richardson. That happened to him. Incidentally, his name's on the bronze plaque out here. He helped engineer this building. But he, had, he gained a worldwide ministry. Read about it. Not just because I wrote it, but it's a great story. 
And I believe that God could put his hand on some people in your, under your ministry in the same way if you won't be afraid of it, won't be intimidated by it. Let them serve. Well, anyway, here's Paul and Silas and this church engaged in worship. And something dramatic happened. Now, what kind of worship is that? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Did you get this month's... Uh, the cover came off. This is this month's Christianity Today. The back page, written by Carl's, Charles Colson, soothing ourselves to death. When church music directors lead congregations in singing contemporary Christian music, he writes, I often listen stoically with teeth clenched. But one Sunday morning I cracked. We'd been led through endless repetition of a meaningless ditty called Draw Me Close to You, which has zero theological content and could just as easily be sung in any nightclub. When I thought it was finally and mercifully over, the music leader beamed, let's sing that again, shall we? No, I shouted, <laughs> loudly enough to send heads all around me spinning while my wife, Patty, cringed. In contrast to that, let me share out of my own experience. The spring semester of my freshman year at NNC, we had prepared for the spring revival. There were groups of us that met in the dorms for several weeks prior to this week of revival meeting, praying God would get through to us, to our student body. The week came. It was a nice series of meetings. There were some that went forward to the altar. But it was not what we had prayed for. A few weeks later, in a regular chapel service, a lady that I didn't know, still don't know who she was, stood up to sing a special. And she sang a hymn. How firm a foundation. How she sang. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. As she went on to the next verse, it seemed like that little chapel at Emerson Hall, something began to happen. There was a moving of God's Spirit. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God, and I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. And on she sang. And revival came. I think she sang all six verses. I don't know. But by the end of that song, few of us were still in our assigned seats. 
down to the front. And I tell you that I'd already confirmed my call into ministry by that point. But nonetheless, that was a major turning point in my own life. Not only for me, but for scores of my classmates. Now that happened, what, 46 years ago? I remember that so vividly. And I cannot retell it without feeling the depth of emotion that was there and still is for me. Well, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not. I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you have some words as powerful as that in your bag of choruses, please use them. If you can't find them, these words, when energized by the Holy Spirit, will change lives, I tell you. And so when I have that memory that I've carried with me all of my adult life, and then I read about the church at Antioch, I think, yeah, it must have been something like that. And don't we long to see that? And the results of it? What happened to Paul and Barnabas and Saul? Changed the world, that's all. And I could bear witness to you that there are some who not long ago sat where you sit who have seen such scenes of ministry of worship in their own ministry and God is still calling people forward and I've had the privilege of seeing the church at work around the world and it's utterly dumbfounding to realize what this handful of Christian believers has accomplished. We do have silver and gold, but thank God we don't let, it, let that get in the way of engaging in some real life-changing ministries, reaching the lost, bringing them to Jesus, changing, transforming societies. We have our super churches My son and I made a trip to India not long ago and the, air, the, airplane, the flight went from Newark, landed in Paris. We got off, spent two days in Paris, spent several hours in the cathedral of the, the Notre Dame Cathedral and got back on the same plane, the same cabin attendants went on to Bombay. A few days after being in that great, great cathedral in Paris, the Notre Dame. My son and I were teaching a group of pastors and their wives and some of their lay people in a little village of Bujapura. 
in Gujarat, north of Bombay. The church buildings in the center of the village, the pastor is the mayor, kind of handy. It's a mud-walled church, thatched roof. It's not adobe, it's um, what they use there. <laughs> Buffalo dung. It's marvelous stuff. And there's an opening in that pitched roof out of which a very rude cross extends. I spent three days there. And I witnessed to you tonight that there was more spiritual power in that dung-daubed church in that little village than I sensed in that great cathedral in Paris. And God's doing a work. In Gujarat, it's against the law to become a Christian. You can be thrown in jail for that. In fact, a few weeks ago, a group on their way to a Nazarene district assembly were arrested and held in, held in jail for a couple of days. But that's where God is at work. And that's where lives are being changed. And so I pray for you to have a ministry that's built on the foundation that Jesus Christ provided. Whether it's a little 20 by 40 chapel out there somewhere or you find yourself in one of our great churches. Wherever you are, what do you have to give? Silver and gold? I hope you have a lot more than that. A spirit that will bring lives to Jesus change them how about singing that song in close you have a hymnal 689 God bless you